Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. To be deceived means that you're saying the opposite of that. So do you hear the fact that he's up against, pushing against, again, people maligning the character of God, Christians impugning the character of God? Do not be deceived. The reality is that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father, down from the Father lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, if you keep in mind what we said last week, and if you weren't here last week, it's all online. Go to heritagepca.org, look at media, find last week's sermon, and you can listen to it. But if you keep in mind what we read last week, especially as we were getting into verse 13, how impugning God's character, saying that God is the one tempting me to sin, how impugning God's character feeds into the dark downward decline of verses 14 through 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so the impugning of God's character feeds that downward dark decline into sin. If you remember that, then you realize James, James is still on point right here. Verse 16, 17, and 18. Do not be deceived and don't allow anyone else to deceive you into thinking that God is stingy and tight-fisted. That's kind of what James is saying. It's a Mike Philibur paraphrase, but it's what James is saying. Friends, do you recall just perchance someone maybe in the Bible somewhere who used that very same tactic to sway a certain woman into disobedience? Has God really said? Don't you know that he really doesn't want you to, he doesn't want your human flourishing. He's very jealous. And so he doesn't want you to eat this. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Yes, his tactics have not changed much. And so James's counter evidence, the evidence he has for verse 17, that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. The counter evidence or that evidence of verse 17 is in verse 18 of his own will. Here's proof that God is a giver of all good gifts of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will. Now, if you were in the adult class this morning, you know what's behind that statement. Because we didn't deserve any of it. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But of his own will, he brought us to life. Praise the Lord. Anybody? Hello? Yes. Right. Awesome. So, my friends, if anyone, if anyone assumes that James is all law and no grace... All browbeating and no mercy. They need to sit up. They need to sit up and pay attention and hear these words of his own will. He brought us forth. He took the initiative. God's initiative is the substantiation and the foundation of all the letter of James. All that he has said up to this point and all that he will say through the rest of the letter. And so don't be fooled. God is lavish, and God is life-giving. Ah, but there's more. As you look at verse 17 and 18, we need to stand a little bit of time here. If you read my pastoral letter this week, some of you got a sneak peek. Okay, good on you, score. 
Here we go. We're going to get into it. I want you to look a little bit further on God's character as it's laid out and hinted at in verse 17 and 18. Notice that first off, God is not stingy, but is gift-giving. Look again at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, etc. Notice that God is not stingy, but he is the gift-giver. But notice the kind of gifts he gives. Anybody notice that? The right kind of gifts. Isn't that what it says? I mean, in a sense, every good gift, every perfect gift. He doesn't just give gifts. Have you ever met the salesman who always gives gifts and they're always the wrong gifts? You know, I don't need another coffee mug. Don't give me one. Oh, but I'm here to recruit you or whatever. No, wrong gift, right? It's not the right gift. Does that make sense? Right? God gives the right gifts, the perfect gifts. You know that from back up in verse 5. If anyone is lacking wisdom, let him ask God for wisdom who gives generously and without reproach to whoever asks in faith. He is a lavish, giving God who gives the right kinds of gifts. Does that make sense? Part of God's character. Wonderful. It goes on and he points out that God is steady and straightforward. He's not flippy floppy or wishy washy. Look at the last part of verse 17. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. To use a Star Wars phrase, there's no dark side to the force, right? God has not got bipolar. He doesn't go from manic to, right? He doesn't go manic and then depressed. He doesn't go back and forth. He doesn't turn on a dime. And what he gives, he turns around and says, oh, I'll take it back. I don't want to give that to you after all. Right? He doesn't flip-flop. He doesn't wish-wash. He's steady. He's straightforward. You can trust him, James says. That's his character. Also notice the very first part of verse 18, which we've already referred to, but here it is again. James goes on and says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Notice that God... Is, is not a God of death, but is the giver of life. Now, hear me out. It doesn't mean that God is not over death. He is. He's even known as the one who gives life and death. But the point is, is that's not his main cup of tea, so to speak. As Ezekiel, as he says in Ezekiel, do I, I don't have any delight in the death of the wicked, but that he should turn and live. So live, he goes on to say. Notice that's the point here. He is the giver of life. And the lastly, the last part of verse 18. He is not demeaning, but he is purpose investing. He has brought us forth by the word of his truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Where is God going with creation? To the new creation. You, because of Jesus, are a foretaste, a part of the new heavens and new earth. You're, in a sense, the down payment of that. That's what he's saying. He has made us, invested us with deeper, longer, perpetual, permanent meaning. God's character. He's not demeaning, but he's purpose investing. And so, dear friends, James says and Mike says, don't be fooled. By demeaning or maligning and impugning God's character. Which then leads us to verses 19 through 25. Fallacious. 19 through 25. Now I want you to observe. And I, I, like I said, I hope you have your Bibles open because you need to follow this. I want you to notice that James has mentioned, just mentioned in verse 18, the word of truth. 
And if you watch closely, you realize that James is clearly talking about the importance and impact of sacred scripture from verse 18 to verse 25. James is talking about the impact and importance of sacred scripture from verse 18 to verse 25. Well, Mike, why are you making a big deal out of that? Glad you asked. Let me tell you. Because it changes the texture and it changes the perspective of a few verses, specifically verse 19 and 20. It changes what James is actually saying there. You see, I know, verse 19 and 20, let us be quick to hear, but slow to speak and slow to anger, because the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. I know we often use those two verses to talk about interpersonal relationships. And based on Proverbs, you heard it when we were reading Proverbs before the confession of sin, based on Proverbs, based on human experience, my own personal experience, there's a lot of truth to that. My grandma was right when she used to say to me, more times than I can count, Mike, the good Lord gave you one mouth, two eyeballs, and two ears. So, speak less, watch more, listen more. Right? It's the same kind of thing. Right? So, yeah, that's our experience, but that's not what James is talking about. James is not talking primarily about our interpersonal relationships there. James is specifically talking about the way we respond to God and to his word. Not how we respond to one another. That's what he says. He talks about the word of truth. And then he says in verse 19, therefore let, um, excuse me, verse 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. He's talking about how we respond to God's word. When we hear it being read, when we're reading it ourselves, when we're uh, dealing with God's word, the temptation at times is to talk the word down or to talk over the word. And the temptation at times is to flare up in anger at the word. And if we were honest, we would all say, "Yeah, you know, I've actually seen that done more than once. Maybe I did it too. Like, I've seen people talk down the word. Right? You go to a Bible study and you're like, you're, you're, you're going through John 6, for example, where Jesus says clearly, you can't come to me. You have to be saved, you're saved by faith in me and all that, but you can't come to me. You can't come unless the Father draws you. And I've heard it said in Bible studies, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, now, are you receiving the word or are you talking it down? You, get what, you picking up what I'm putting down? We're human. Guess what we're experts at? Oh, talking over and talking down the word of the Lord. The other response is to flare up in anger. And I've seen that and you've seen that when that happens. When you're reading scripture and finally you just blow up and you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't care who said it. And I've had people say that to my face. And they're talking about scripture. That's what James is referring to, our response to God's word. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. That's his point. That's the first fallacious trap James wants us to evade. And so he goes on there in verse 21, he's talking about the reason for our insufferable irritability, 
about God's word is connected, James says, with filthiness and rampant wickedness. It's affiliated with our filthiness and rampant wickedness. Remove those things. When you find yourself talking over, talking down the word or blowing up in anger, go back to yourself first and remove the filthiness and the rampant wickedness and then receive it with meekness. I love the way Warren Wiersbe puts it. Warren Wiersbe is a Baptist minister or, or was. I, don't, I can't remember if he's alive anymore, but he used to do back to the Bible radio program. Anybody remember those programs, right? I love his commentary series. I don't always agree with him. I'm not a dispensationalist and he is, but they're wonderful. You want to invest some money in a really good little commentary series? His little B series, B-E, are wonderful. And in his series, in his book on James, Be Mature, he says this, and it should be hopefully the quotation, the first one in your sermon notes. James warns us against getting angry at God's word because it reveals our sins to us. And so our primary and proper reaction to God and to his word should be quickness to hear. Specifically to receive it with meekness. This implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now what in the world does James mean when he's talking about the implanted word? My friends, James has got Jesus on the brain. I'm just going to tell you. James has got Jesus on the brain. Don't let anybody ever tell you that James is, a, is, is all law, no gospel. James has got Jesus on the brain. Does anybody remember a story that Jesus told about a sower, a planter who went out with his seed, and he went out and, and sowed his seed on four kinds of soil? Does this story sound familiar here? So the one was really, yes, I see that hand. One was really, really hard, and the word didn't get implanted because it was too hard, and the birds ate the seed. One was pretty shallow. The word got implanted, but it didn't really receive it because it grew up and then it went away. One was weedy soil, so the word got planted there. The seed got planted there, but the cares of the world choked it out. And then the seed was sown on good soil from which was produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. The implanted word, that's what James is referring to. He's got Jesus on the brain. He's read the Gospels, I just want you to know. He was there, right? And so that's what he's referring to. Receive this implanted word that the sower has sown into your heart. Receive it with meekness. It's the very same thing that God himself is talking about back in Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite of spirit, broken in spirit, and trembles at my word. Now my friends, let me talk to preachers because there's only two of us in here that I know of. Right? Just you and me. I think Hunter's back. Did I see... Yeah, there he is, okay. And there may be some others watching in. I just have to say this. Brothers, it's too easy to become the manufacturer of the word. It's too stinking easy to become the engineer over the word. To manipulate it, to make it fit our Bible study needs or our sermon needs. We also have to receive with meekness the implanted word. That's for all of us. None of us are excused. Hugely important. But further, we don't want to fall into the second fallacious trap. That hearing God's word and arguing about God's word and becoming experts at God's word and quoting God's word in whole verses and chapters but being unaffected by God's word. That's verses 22 through 25. That's a trap. 
When you can do all that with the Bible, but it doesn't impact you. It's a trap. James is concerned, remember, with hand and heart. And so if faith, as we heard this morning in the call to worship, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, then James is taking us from that place of actually having faith, hearing the word of Christ, to now doing the next step to being doers of that very word we've heard. Brothers and sisters, for us to think that all we have to do is just sit around and become expert decipherers and dilettantes of the word is to deceive ourselves, James says, verse 22. Notice that? Is to deceive ourselves. It's to lie to ourselves. I took 45 pages of notes, preacher. I got it all figured out right here and it doesn't impact me that I'm a liar. I'm deceiving myself. It's a fallacious, self-deceiving ploy on our parts. And James will not allow us such self-deluding comforts. Therefore, he illustrates how fallacious this trap is by picturing the word as a mirror and the forgetful onlooker. And I know that at least three of you, probably like me, went, hey, I relate to that story. I mean, when was the last time you went to the mirror and you looked in the mirror and you were working on something, you walked away and you stopped, you went, wait, did I comb my hair? I don't remember. That happened to me this morning. Did I comb my hair? Did, 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 I, did I trim my beard? I mean, did I do, did, where are my glasses? You ever do that one? Where are my glasses? Right? You forget. I just thought that was so funny. That verse is so real. And that's what it's like, reading the word and then walking away and not remembering anything. It's like the person that looks in the mirror and doesn't remember what they look like. Instead, what we're to do is we are to see the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember, there's no other New Testament book written at this point. James is the first. So when he's talking about the Word, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. We're to see the Hebrew Scriptures as the perfect law, the law of liberation, the law of liberty. And we're to see ourselves, verse 25, as the eager enactors. I like the way that William Barclay puts it. By the way, let me tell you, give you a cautious recommendation. And the word cautious is in red letters, okay? William Barclay denied. You you know the commentary series I'm talking about? Those little bitty daily study Bible study series? They were popular in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. They're wonderful little books. William Barclay denied the resurrection of Jesus in more than one place. And he denied many of the miracles. So it's a red letter caution. Be cautious. But they're wonderful little commentaries. I love the way he puts it in his commentary. And you've got this quote there. James does well to remind us that what is heard in the holy place must be lived in the marketplace. What is heard in the holy place must be lived in the marketplace. Or there is no point in hearing at all. Well, let me tidy up a few loose ends before we move to our third point. My friends, as I said, that the word that James is referring to here is clearly the Hebrew Scriptures. But you must remember who James is. Verse 1, look back at verse 1. The servant of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so James, when he's talking about hearing the word, he's talking about hearing the word the way Jesus told us to hear the word in Luke 24. 
Because James was there when Jesus raised from the dead said, I've been teaching you how to read the Old Testament and you haven't heard me, let me tell you again. Something like that. Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets all testify of me. So when he's talking about reading the Hebrew Scriptures, he's talking about reading the Hebrew Scriptures with Jesus on the brain. It's all gospel. Do you get it? This letter is gospel grounded. And so you can honestly say the Old Testament is God's word for God's people in every age. Next, my friends, there are many ways to become hearers of the word. We can read it regularly, and I hope you do. We can memorize it. I hope you do. We can listen to audio versions of it. And for those of you who have problems reading or not enough time and you have to do it in your car, that's great. I hope you're doing that then. But in James's day, where only the local synagogue would have had enough money to buy the scriptures, there were no pocket Bibles. I mean, it cost a bunch of money to get the scribes to hand copy all the manuscripts on on uh, on material that had to be cured and dried and massaged and I mean it took a lot of money nobody could afford a copy a personal copy of the Bible unless you were a bazillionaire and so you depended on the synagogue where they pulled together the money to actually have copies of the scripture and so when he's talking about hearing the word he's talking about the public reading of scripture that's his context here in the assembly, that that was the main medium anyone heard the word. Now look, I don't want to make too much out of this. I'm not going to go too far with this. I just think, though, that we need to remember that and we need to reclaim something that we easily have let go. We need to reclaim, reclaim the value of the public reading of Scripture. We need to reclaim the value of the public reading of Scripture and the wide-eyed hearing of the public reading of Scripture. I'll tell you a little secret. I, 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 I have for years, for decades, have seen the most important part of my sermon is not the sermon, but the public reading of Scripture. Because I ain't got nothing to say if God ain't spoken. Now, I think that's huge. And so that's why I actually practice reading Scripture before, for, for the week before we have the sermon, because it is extremely important. In fact, the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, devote yourself. That's not fly by night, just do it from the hip. That's like giving yourself to it. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation, and to teaching. And I'll tell you that Pastor West does the same thing when he's preparing for a sermon, practicing publicly reading Scripture. But additionally, my friends, the, the biblical thinking in the Westminster Shorter Catechism's question and answer number 90 fits in nicely with James here. So if you want to write that note down, Westminster Shorter Catechism number 90... I think I asked the kids to get a copy and you to sit down with them and read it together, right? But here it is. How is the word to be read and heard? Read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation. Listen to the answer. And it's just like it's flowing out of James. That the word may become effectual to salvation. We must attend, attend, attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. 
Lay it up in our hearts. Or excuse me. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. So, thinking about that, realizing the value of the sacred scripture, and we want to receive it with meekness, that word which is able to save our souls. We actually probably ought to, with the catechism as it's explaining it, take a little bit more time on Saturday, maybe Friday, could be as far back as Thursday, getting ready. Like maybe even scheduling our bedtime on Saturday night. I'm going for preaching to Medlin, I'm sorry. Scheduling our bedtime on Saturday night a little bit earlier, so that way we're at least kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on Sunday morning. And then helping our kids, you have kids, helping our kids to realize that they are disciples. You, you have kids, I'm going to say this, you who have kids are fulfilling the Great Commission. You're making disciples. They're right there. God gave them to you. And so you have a calling right now, as long as they're there, to disciple them. And so you can help them to be prepared to attend to the word as it is read and proclaimed. To hear it, receive it with faith and love, to lay it up in their hearts and practice in their lives. Well, my friends, we're beckoned then by James to walk away from the fallacious traps of being angry, being obtuse hearers of the word as well as being only hearers and arguers and unengaged onlookers of the word. And we're to walk toward being the receivers and doers of the word by which God has given us life and has rescued us. And James actually has a specific set of practices he wants us to do by the word's direction. And it begins in the last two verses here. There's most of this letter is saying, here's what I mean by being doers of the word. But right up front, verse 26 and 27, is he wants us to not be involved in phony religion, but to do the opposite. And he lays it out there. So verse 26 and 27. I want you to notice in verse 26 and 27, there are three traits that James lists that that are a contrast to phony religion. So phony religion is being contrasted with faithful religion. And I know it's not popular to talk about religion, but it's right here in the Bible, so I'm going to talk about it. He's contrasting phony religion from faithful religion, and he uses three traits here. First off, you see it in verse 26? Bridling our tongue. The man who doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is empty, it's worthless, it's phony religion. And when he's talking about bridling our tongue, he's talking about our communicative capacities, right? Bridling our tongue, whether it's in spoken word, whether it's an emailed word, whether it's in posted word, whether it's in printed word, whether it's in snail mailed word, whether it's in texted word, whether it's in sticky noted word, or whatever it is. The one who doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. And he's going to spend more time. He's going to get into this in greater detail. Just go look at chapter 3. You can't miss it. All of chapter 3 is basically about this point. My friends, futile religion uses no restraint on the tongue. It's what James is saying there. Implying that faithful religion uses the truth, uses words, and uses information wisely and well. Let me give you an illustration. It's kind of fun to do this because I know I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings, I'm sure. 
So today I saw Ken and I just want you to know and I want to tell you, Ken, I'm just so glad that you're not drunk today. Thank you. And did I tell the truth? I actually told the truth, right? Did I use the truth rightly? No, that's called slander. That is slander. I just implied in a very passive, evil, it's a very evil approach. I implied in a very passive way that, Ken, you all just need to know this. I know you're visiting with Ken. Sometimes he may not be so sober, right? That's what I'm implying, right? And so by that statement, which is a very passive way of being assaultive, that's what phony religion does, for example. But faithful religion knows to restrain, to bridle the tongue. There's the first trait he mentions. The second one is in verse 27, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, in their affliction. And the implication of this will come out even more detail when you get to chapter 2, in the middle of chapter 2, but it's this, it's that phony religion is not engaged with people in need. Phony religion is not engaged with people in need. Whereas faithful religion, which is pure and undefiled before God the Father, cares about real people and aids. And notice this is the widows and orphans, the orphans and widows. You may not realize this because you're in America, thank God. But orphans and widows in most of the world today and throughout all of world history are the voiceless and the easily victimized. And what James is saying is that those who have faithful religion engage with those who are the voiceless and the easily victimized. We don't just sit back and let them be trafficked, for example. Right? Engaged. Those with faithful religion engage with real people, aiding those who are voiceless and easily victimized. Whereas those with phony religion don't. Lastly, James says the other trait is keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And that's really most of the letter of James from chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, all the way to almost the end of chapter 5. Where you see phony religion follows the world's notions of wisdom. Follows the world's notions of wisdom with all of its jealousy, selfish ambition warring with one another, going even on business ventures without even a thought of God's sovereignty or the brevity of life, misusing wealth and power to defraud others and so forth. I could pile on more. Just, I'm just referring to James, what he says in James. That's what phony religion does. But faithful religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father exhibits a different ethic. One that actually employs hand and heart that hears God's word with open hearts, not all angry and obtuse, that hears God's word to engage God's word for life. So there are the three aspects, the traits that he brings out that contrast phony religion from faithful religion. But lastly, I just want you to notice as we think about this, Do you notice again that James is correcting those who might impugn God's character in verse 26 and 27? Those who think that God can be fooled by their religiosity? That's what he says. Look at it again. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, 
This person's religion is worthless, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. God knows. Those who malign and impugn God's character think God doesn't know. I can schmooze God. Used to see that in the military. Let me tell you about that, right? Thinking we were getting shot at by Gaddafi across the big pond. And how many people started coming up to me? Hey, Sarge, you got a New Testament? Dude, you don't even read the Bible. Why do you want a Bible for now? Oh, put it close to my heart. It'll stop bullets. Right? We get all phony when we're under pressure. But God is not snagged by our phoniness. So James is talking again about those who impugn God's character. Think he can be fooled with phony religion. And he's implying here very clearly he cannot be fooled. He knows the truth. God cannot be fooled by phony religion. He is not fooled by phony religiosity. So don't even go there. So let me tidy up the last part of this and then we'll end. First off, dear friends, do not be lulled into the trap of impugning God's character by thinking he can be fooled with phony religion or thinking that he is stingy and tight-fisted. Rather, remember who your God is, lavish and life-giving. And so let this guide your maturation and the muscling up of your faith. Let it be what fuels you to engage hand and heart. But next, relish the word. Relish the word. Check yourself. When you find yourself blowing up, when you find yourself getting all blustery at the word, stop. Far better. Rather, rather sit there. Sit under the word to allow it to have its way with you. Allow the word to have its way with you. Allow the word to have its way with you. And then see how to employ or how it can employ you. Finally, my friends, the gospel of our Lord Jesus is the very foundation and substantiation of this letter. Rejoice that of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we might be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so let us put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need to be hearers of your word. We confess to you that there are some times and some flash before my own memory of myself where... Hard-headed, hard-hearted. I will not submit to your word. I remember those. And maybe there are others who do too. Forgive us, Lord, for those moments. Help us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Thank you that of your own will you have brought us forth by the word of truth. Forgive us for the times that we have impugned your character. Forgive us for the times that we have maligned you and thought that you were like us or like you were, that you were like others that we know. But you're really good and you are steady and you're stable. Forgive us for thinking otherwise. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to engage hand and heart that we would be those because of your grace, because of the fact you brought us forth, because you're the one who gives us life, that we would now go forward engaging faithfully, bridling our tongues, 
visiting real life people and their needs, especially the, voices, the, the, the voiceless and the easily victimized, caring for them and keeping ourselves unstained from the world. We ask all of this. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask, we ask all of this through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.